Hello, and welcome to another UK column interview. What did Pfizer know? Many of you will have watched our previous interviews, and for those that are vaccine injured, I'm sure you may have watched them as well. Our previous interviews with the wonderful Dr. Naomi Wolf from the Daily Clout and also Amy Kelly. And the links to those interviews will be in the article beneath this interview. And today, I'm really happy to welcome Dr. Chris Flowers, who has been leading 3,250 researchers, nurses, pharmacists, actuaries, doctors, clinical research specialists, all around the globe. And they've been researching into the Pfizer data, the analysis that Pfizer has now released as a result of a legal action in the USA. I'm also really delighted to be joined by Cheryl Granger. And Cheryl has been bridging the gap between the United Kingdom and the USA. And we'll be meeting Cheryl in just a second. And I know that many of you watching today will know somebody possibly that is suffering from a serious adverse reaction, or indeed you may be suffering from one yourself. And I understand that some of the information that you hear today may be difficult. And we hope to give you some solutions to that. So please stay listening and please share this because I think it's going to be a very important interview moving forward. Now, Dr. Chris Flowers is a retired academic. He's a retired professor radiologist specializing in breast cancer. He's an author and a journal reviewer, and he's leader and medical reviewer of the Daily Clout War Room Pfizer investigations. He's also a very experienced expert in clinical research and breast cancer screening, so knows all about risks and benefits. Dr. Flowers, welcome. Welcome back from the USA to the UK, and thank you so much for joining us at UK Column. Hi, Debbie. Hi, Debbie. Nice to see you again. Let's uh, just say hello to Cheryl Granger, and many of our viewers will be very familiar with Cheryl. She's an independent pharmaceutical training consultant. Cheryl, thank you for joining us and welcome. Hi, everybody. Thanks very much for having me and nice to see you both today. Right. Well, with that said, Chris, can I start with you? And I think it's really important and it's something that Cheryl has been asking me to do and I'm going to carry on doing, I think, for a very long time. And that is can I just ask you to explain that the documents that you're seeing, these thousands, hundreds of thousands of pages from Pfizer, and now some of the Moderna documents as well are coming to you. These are the very same documents that would have been seen by regulators all over the world. So not just the FDA, but the MHRA would have seen these documents prior to this vaccine, in inverted commas, being rolled out. Um, is that fair to say that June Rain and the MHRA knew all this information that you're now seeing before the vaccine was rolled out? Well, what I can say for sure is that the FDA knew uh, with Pfizer about all these serious adverse events, both during the trial, uh, during and after approval of the um, emergency use authorization product that was rolled out in the U.S., and eventually over here. Um, but I'm still working on finding out, and Cheryl is the, one of the most important people here, is how much did the MHRA know 
Um, I know that the European Medicines Association certainly were looking at the data, and they were the ones who actually queried uh, Pfizer on some of the uh, things that were, for example, in what's called Process 2, which is the commercial product uh, that was um, given as a vaccine uh, in Europe. So I know that the European Medicines Association, uh, any agency, um, knew they had the data. They knew for sure that things were going on. They were asking some questions. They didn't ask them all. But the question for me is, uh, which I'm still working on, we're still trying to find out, is how much data sharing did the FDA and all their committees, their advisory committees, like the VRB pack, which is the FDA one, and AICP, which is the CDC advisory committee, how much they actually shared with MHRA. And I'm sure because of the agreements that we found um, that the MHRA must have had this information. So if they certainly have had that information, then we can go after the MHRA with the same verve and vigor that we're beginning to now go after the FDA and the, the doctors who've been on the advisory committees who are highly conflicted, who are paid for by Big Pharma, who have these huge amounts of, um, of uh, research grants. And then once they finish um, their clinical work, there's a rotating door. Now, I know a lot of us are aware of what's happened with um, my old friend, Professor John Van Tam. Look what happened with him. Uh, I was um, a, a training in radiology in Nottingham at the time while he was a med student, and I, I knew him very well at that time. And I was extremely surprised to hear what, what he was saying, just nodding away uh, during all those daily briefings with Boris Johnson uh, that we used to watch from the USA because it was on it was on YouTube every day, so we were able to see what was actually going on back in the UK. So we were very concerned by all of this, and now, of course, he's taken on a position at Moderna and is being paid huge amounts of money, as you would expect from. Um, these sort of people who are in these advisory positions, in the senior positions. That's all I can say right now on that. I, I completely agree with the revolving door. And um, I've looked into Professor Jonathan Van Tam and he's got quite a pedigree. You know, he's got quite a CV with many pharmaceutical companies. So when he started, when he was uh, assistant, was he deputy chief medical officer, he'd already got a long pedigree in pharmaceuticals. And of course, the same can be said for Ian Hudson, who was the CEO of the MHRA. And uh, whilst he was CEO, he took a big, uh, a big donation from the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation for, for the MHRA. And is now, when he resigned as CEO and June Rain took over, Ian Hudson is now working for the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. So here again, we have the revolving door. Um, I think what you said about Cheryl being um, an incredibly vital link in the war room in the USA and what we are trying to establish here in the UK, a war room in the UK. And I think it's a really good time to, to bring Cheryl in because I know Cheryl's got some questions for you too. Cheryl, over to you. Uh, thanks, Debbie. Um, 
I'm very interested in what uh, Chris has just said. Um, obviously, the EMA was the only person, only group that seemed to be asking questions, not that they seemed to wait for answers before they allowed uh, use to go ahead. Um, I haven't seen that the MHRA ever asked any questions around uh, the information that they were supposedly seeing. Um, the thing that seemed so incredible to me was that this information seemed to be produced in six to nine months uh, of time and that the regulators took no more than three months to review that amount of information um, which from the amount of time it's taken you and your group to review it seems quite impossible to have got into the depth of understanding what the information was trying to tell them and actually to throw up the signals and the warnings um, that it should have thrown up and certainly that should have led to a lot of questions um, around um, not only the um, clinical trials but also the manufacturing of the product. Um, so the time frame suggests that it was perhaps never read through properly or just skimmed. Uh, would you agree with that? Yes, the, um, the interesting thing is if you go back and watch the presentations that were made at the advisory committee meetings. So really the F F FRB PAC and the AICP, they, they have up to now been available, um, but the ones around the clinical trial have now um, been removed from um, the website, um, which is disturbing in itself. Um, but it's quite clear the way uh, these committees worked, it seemed like um, the, they were given presentations by Pfizer and Pfizer just said there are no new significant safety signals. Uh, and it's almost as though they were just rubber stamping the whole process. And our question, like I've been, I've been on a Paul Offit on, um, on uh, both his Substack and on Twitter, you know, asking him, um, now, did you actually look at the data? Because if you had looked at the data, you would have seen there were serious adverse events that were happening way above normal, and that in the past, these sort of things have put a full stop on any of these clinical trials, like in the swine uh, flu vaccine clinical trial. That was stopped prematurely after there were two deaths. Well, within two months, we had over 20 deaths in the Pfizer clinical trial. And in the manuscript we've just had published is a, a, a forensic review of the deaths in the clinical trial. What happened was that there were, over, there were 38 deaths in the uh, clinical trial group, mainly because of the fact that the placebo group were all vaccinated, about 19,500 placebo patients received the vaccine, which was this new process two, which contains these excess uh, DNA plasmids that are quite dangerous and above the normal recommended dose. So they had a lot of serious adverse events and Pfizer didn't sort of report those. But we put, we've seen all the clinical research forms, the case report forms on these uh, subjects who are in the trial and there were 38 deaths, not the 20 odd reported by Pfizer. So Pfizer underreported, number one. Number two is that they sort of summarized and gave a conclusion according to their sort of their senior boss um, to the 
the advisory committees. And the question that we have that we haven't had answered is how much of the actual data did the advisory committee members read beforehand? Did they just go along, see the presentation, oh, everything's fine, wonderful, let's give the thumbs up and get this out? Or did they, you know, their responsibility, though, was to look through the data. Why didn't they look through the data? You know, why did they take Pfizer at their, at their word? You know, I know it was rushed. The whole thing was, you know, condensed down at, at, at warp speed, as they call it. But at the end of the day, these advisory committee members, their duty and responsibility to the public at large, to the taxpayers who are funding them, although it's in, in effect, it's not actually the taxpayers funding them, it's, it's Big Pharma, you know, which means that they're not really independent people at all. But, you know, even, even from an ethics point of view, it makes me concerned that surely in normal clinical trials, the people who are on the advisory committee look through the data for themselves. They're used to this. They're the experts in their field. They look at this data normally and can tell you immediately if there's, if there's something going wrong here. So, I, you know, we believe that they knew, but we haven't had absolute proof. And... Uh, it may take um, some uh, subpoenas in Congress to actually uh, get the ball rolling to find um, this out because at the end of the day, when we try to do freedom of information requests of the FDA, we don't really get very far, just like Cheryl has found with the MHRA. Um, we're just seen as nuisance people. Um, what's it to us if um, this wasn't a safe thing? I mean, what? Damn you, no. We, uh, excuse my French. Um, the, the thing is, you know, we're the people who are, we're the clever people. We know what's best for you. Do what Big Pharma say. Just take this vaccine and you'll be fine. It's safe and effective. Really? Is it safe and effective? I wish it was. Just by the very fact that EMA started asking questions, didn't get answers, you know, put time dates on some of them, six months ahead, but didn't get answers, um, then it's as if they were silenced because nobody else joined in and asked questions. And that is what they've always done in the past. The pattern changed, didn't it? Because they normally read stuff, query something, it goes back, it comes back, they read it again, and that is the pattern. That's the way that things are regulated. But there was no regulation, and anybody who asked a question was actually stopped. Yes, that's correct. The MHRA and in the UK, we work on a completely different system, of course, to the USA. And what we're seeing is the different states in the USA have got different powers and have different procedures. And we're seeing senators and we're seeing politicians standing up and we're seeing a lot of people challenging. In the UK, we don't have that system. And so the MHRA have been obfuscating the whole way down the line. And Cheryl and I have been watching the MHRA very, very closely from um, quite, quite close on. I mean, really, they know who we are for a long time. Um, so there's that, there's that point. And there's also another point that I know that Cheryl wants to talk about, which is bait and switch. So I just want to ask you about process one and process two. Our audience, they're going to be treated all over the world. And they're ones that have had a Pfizer injection or ones that have loved ones with a Pfizer injection, maybe not aware that there are actually two products and that 
the USA seem to have received a completely different product from those of us here in Europe. Could you explain a bit about the the fact that we haven't had the same as the USA and vice versa? Yes, of course. Um, There are actually three products. If you take into account the the, uh, product that was used for the clinical trial or the vast majority of the clinical trial. Now, this was produced a bit like um, it's using PCR technology. So it's a bit like when you have your nasal swab, they used to use this PCR and amplify the DNA. They were able to find um, whether you got COVID based on that, and they could tell you the strain and things like that. And that it was that sort of process that was used to make the vaccine, which is, I keep doing air quotes because it's not really uh, a vaccine as such, because the FDA had to change their definition of a vaccine um, to accommodate this new process that was being used. But at the end of the day, this original uh, technique would never, ever uh, be able to provide enough doses to satisfy the USA, never mind the rest of the world. And so at the same time, Pfizer was developing using E. coli and um, DNA plasmids, um, the the precursors, if you like. They could do this in in, uh, rather large quantities. Now, this was referred to as process two, and it was tried under coercion, if you like, by uh, the EMA. It was allowed to be used in the clinical trial on the final 250 subjects in the trial. Um, and yet the FDA did question this because it isn't, it's a different product. And so, you know, you really need a separate clinical trial for a new product. You can't say, well, it's broadly similar, therefore um, it's fine which it isn't. I mean, we never do that. You don't replace one with another. So there was that aspect to it. But the FDA then sort of dropped it and didn't do anything about it. So that is the product that um, has been used. It's just been called the BNT162B2 EUA product. And it is still being produced for people in the USA. Now, they had to produce something uh, that could be... um, could be licensed for regular use. And that was done in August of 2020, um, 2021 it was, and that's called Comernati. And that is the, the orange top that you guys are all getting and uh, virtually the whole of Europe got that as well. And now this is similar in that the mRNA is similar. The lipid nanoparticles that protect the um, modified RNA that is used in the vac- in the so-called vaccine um, is the same, but the constituents of the other things in the vaccine are slightly different. And there is a difference in adverse events between the authorized product, the licensed product, and the regular EUA product. Sorry about all these letters and numbers and things. But trying to differentiate one from another is really complicated. Suffice it to say that in the USA, everyone's getting um, the original product. You in Europe are getting this modified uh, product. And uh, some of the buffering solutions and things like that um, are known to cause uh, some uh, 
issues, shall we say, um, in, especially in younger children. Um, so these are the sort of things that really the regulator should be on top of and uh, questioning and reassuring the public if they believe that it's absolutely safe, they should show evidence that it, this is perfectly safe to use uh, for a vaccine a vaccination schedule. But they, they can't, they neither can do that nor will they do that because it exposes the whole business because this mRNA is not mRNA as we would normally know it. Mon, uh, mess, this is, messenger RNA is used to, um, basically it's a short-lived um, procedure that uh, enables your body to produce some new DNA. Now what they did in the development process was something called codon optimization. That means A, they chose um, to use the spike protein, which is extremely dangerous. Uh, they inserted something called a furin cleavage site, which makes it even more dangerous, um, which is because it was originally designed as a, as, 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 a, as a weaponized product. That's why the research labs in the Ukraine and in Somalia that were found, those are the ones, and in China, of course, Wuhan, China is where um, some of this product actually went and was uh, developed. Now, this is, this is a, a major problem because now we've modified the messenger RNA. It doesn't degrade in the normal process. It doesn't go, uh, get lysed by your body's own enzymes within a few hours like normal mRNA. A loose mRNA in your body normally is not a problem because your own enzymes come along, eat it up, and it's gone. This modified mRNA is the more serious type because it doesn't go, and it seems to persist for a long time in a, a certain group of people. The good news is, however, um, which we'll get to towards the end, is the some of the treatments that are available to try and, if you like, detox yourself from this spike protein factories that we have developed across our bodies because the lipid nanoparticles are able to travel to every part of the body. It never was intended to stay just in the deltoid like they told us when they gave us the injection. It was going to stay there. What are you worried about? And it's going to disappear after a few hours. No, it isn't. It's going everywhere in the body, going to your reproductive system, goes to the ovaries, it goes to testes, and worst of all, it crosses the normal barriers in the body that prevent poisons getting into A, the brain, and B, the placenta, into a chi child developing in the womb. And so that is why um, pregnant women were, ref basically Pfizer said, we cannot possibly do this clinical trial in people who are pregnant or may become pregnant. And they even gave information to uh, people in the trial of childbearing age gave them information about how they should not uh, become pregnant by using double forms of contraception, et cetera, et cetera, and not being near a vaccinated person um, at all during that pregnancy. And yet here we are two years later down the line, and they recommend it for use in children and in babies and infants. And the whole thing 
strikes me as not just negligence, but this must be planned because when, you know, why would you ever give your kids this sort of vaccine? Um, thankfully, the UK have said no more under 50. Um, so that is good. Whereas in other countries and in the USA, they're strongly promoting uh, both pregnant women and children to have this, the uh, booster, booster vaccines. Totally unnecessary. It's quite shocking, actually, Chris, to hear that, that Pfizer were giving those instructions to participants of the clinical trial, the, the original data that you've seen, that they were going to such lengths to say to people of childbearing age, you must you must use as much contraception as, as necessary. And, and they highlighted that. I just want to take you back to one thing because it raised alarm bells in my head. And uh, regular viewers will know why. I've been looking at E. coli for a very long time. Am I right, because you mentioned E. coli, am I right in believing that one of these vaccines, and I'm using speech marks now, um, was developed in E. coli? And this E. coli, I mean, let's not um, dress it up. This is colonic bacteria, right? This comes from poo. So we've we've done lots of um, articles and we've done plenty of news broadcasts where we've talked about how healthy E. coli is within you, <laughs> your own E. coli, but when it's someone else's or it's come from somewhere else, then it can get very dangerous. If this is the case, and I'm understanding that correctly, how can we be sure that the vials of injections weren't contaminated with E. coli? Well, we, we know they were contaminated um, basically by the products of what was inside of the E. coli, because the in the manufacturer, what they do is they, they have to clean up the E. coli to extract these DNA plasmids to then make the modified uh, mRNA. Now, there's always going to be contamination, and the European Medicines Agency actually has strict guidelines, and that's where they started pushing back uh, against Pfizer because they were aware of contamination, um, specifically with the amount of DNA plasmids that were, were left. And it's the DNA plasmids that are the most important thing. But regarding other contamination from the E. coli, there, has been, there was a paper that came out about 18 months ago on sequencing of this modified mRNA. And one of the sequences within that sequence, like a long instruction string, um, there was something called a supertoxin. That's the E. coli supertoxin. Um, normally, that's the thing that gives you food poisoning. <laughs> you know, you can't, you, you can't make this sort of thing up. Um, so that was a signal that there was contamination uh, from the E. coli. Because you're using mRNA and there's, it, there's a, an enzyme called transcriptase that takes this message from the messenger RNA and puts it into DNA, and it goes vice versa too. There's going to be, inevitably, there's going to be some cross-contamination um, of that sort of information so that we get embedded in our own cells some of the genetic material from E. coli, because that's just a matter of fact that you're going to get the occasional error in transcription, and you're going to get insertion of this into the product that gets into your body that can be um, 
actually brought into uh, your own DNA, which is how they make the spike protein factories. And that is very concerning, especially for the future. Really want to talk to you about spike protein in a minute. But before I do, I want to let Cheryl jump in because uh, I think she's got something to say. Cheryl. Um, yeah, I mean, it's all very um, confusing as to why when they knew in the past that um, mRNA uh, modified um, RNA technology had not um, brought about the results that they wanted. And also the lipid nanoparticles they were seen to be toxic as well and hadn't got through any um, studies over the past um, 10 years to actually show that they should ever go near a human body. How did they go from knowing that to all of a sudden everything's been sorted, we're fine? Yes. The answer is <laughs> I, I really don't know. It's like, it's like um, a night's move. It's, a, it's, a, it's, it's like up there and then it's across two squares. squares. There's no logic that goes from one to another because if they'd taken any notice of history any notice of the vast amount of research that had already been done into the lipid nanoparticle mrna platform um it's been going on for 30 odd years of research into this and some people say it's been going on for almost 100 years i haven't seen evidence of that but we know from the mid 80s they've been working on this and they've always said that it's not for human use because of the, the, uh, where the lipid nanoparticles go. And, of course, they didn't know until really relatively recently from the Dr. Arne Burk Burkhardt uh, autopsy studies done in Germany just how much residual lipid nanoparticles were turning up across the human body. So even way after you've had the vaccine, there are these clumps, the hard, flat, fatty clumps uh, that are, are still there in your own body. The body is not recognizing them as foreign. They're not getting rid of them. So what plans had you in place to resolve that? Now, normally, these big pharma companies, they introduce something because in, in their minds, they've already got a second product ready to treat all the side effects of that product. So that's why, you know, with chemo, you have all sorts of products also produced by Big Pharma to deal with the side effects of their own treatment. And here, it's like, if you're going to do that, at least have something in backup. But they haven't even got that. There's, but there has been no evidence, no safety evidence that these should ever be used in humans. And, and yet, because it's such a quick way of producing all sorts of different types of vaccines, in inverted commas, the, um, they have moved wholesale to this platform. It is cheap to do. It's not expensive. And especially as the government's been paying for it, you know, we the taxpayers, the government through we the taxpayers, are the ones who are funding Big Pharma to produce all this stuff. Back in the day, if you remember, Big Pharma said, oh, we need, we need to charge large prices because um, of the amount of money we spend on research and development. Well, on this, of course, they didn't have to spend any money at all. It was all funded up front by uh, the U.S. Department of Defense, um, which, again, raises concerns. Um, but, you know, big sigh, 
we are little people, but we the people um, are the only ones who can change things here. You know, we've got we've got to stick together. We have to be loud. We have to be annoying. We have to be the people who are irritating the MHRA, the EMA, etc., to try and get them to once again look after the patient, the subject, the person, not uh, the big big farmer and their pocketbook. Yeah, exactly. And uh, for people that are watching, you might be interested to know that um, Chris and I actually trained together at the Royal Free Hospital back in the day. Although we didn't bump into each other while we were there, we both went through the same same training where medicine and nursing was looking after each other, supporting each other when you're feeling most vulnerable. And that's what we're we're going to carry on doing because human Humans need humans, right? We need human touch. We need the social support as well. Uh, I want to bring you back, though, quickly to spike protein because we hear a lot about spike proteins. You know, it's everywhere. And when you see a picture of a spike protein, to be honest, it doesn't look terribly nice. Um, so already it's looking hostile. Now, I know that um, I was quite shocked, actually, to hear uh, because I've, I've listened to your um, remarkable testimony in in Canada recently, and there is something that now people are calling spike protein disease, um, and it's being sort of linked with long COVID, long haul COVID. Can you go into that a little bit more? Yes, um, I was uh, came up with the term the uh, spike protein disease because it's quite clear that. You know, long what people are calling long COVID that is baffling my colleagues. They have no idea why this is happening. You know, we've even produced a T-shirt that says not baffled. And then people can ask you, why aren't you baffled? Because we know we, we've seen the data. We know what's going on. Um, the, the, the thing is, the symptoms of long COVID are basically spike residual spike protein that affects the electrical signals in a lot of the body. It affects the blood vessels, the lining of the blood vessels called the endothelium. And on autopsy studies, you can actually stain for the spike protein and you'll see it uh, around all these blood vessels, even in the brain um, and in different, different uh, organs of the body. So it's everywhere. It's causing all sorts of issues. When it gets into the brain, this is the sort of thing that gives you the brain fog you, know, you, probably, you probably come across this, um, that people uh, don't have the same sort of energy. Um, they seem to have flat emotions now, and we don't know whether this is partly um, it's due to the fact we've had lockdowns and people wearing masks, stupid things like, like that, the inconsiderate, inhumane treatment that the population has had to undergo during covid and would like to bring back as another emergency this fall, but we're not going. We're not going to take that because you know we know better now, and there is evidence that things like the masks don't work, like the big Cochrane study um, that, should, that confirmed that. But from a spike protein, um, this is the serious aspects of the vaccine. Now, post COVID, there is some residual. Um, spike protein that's left around. And in, a, in certain patients, we haven't been able to identify so far 
which groupings um, it's in. But it's clear on tissue biopsies and when you stain with immunohistochemistry for the spike protein, that there is residual spike protein, as I mentioned, around the blood vessels, and especially affecting the electrical tissue, the the pathways around the heart, which is why people get suddenly drop drop dead or these 32-year-old extremely fitness fitness uh, guru suddenly drops dead has a heart attack and drops dead and um, that's that's it gone we're seeing so much so much sudden death that we never used to see back in the day all caused by spike protein so from that point of view spike protein i agree with you is extremely dangerous and i've been trying to engage with as many of these long COVID people as possible, trying to <clears throat> get them to think in terms of spike protein, where, wherever it's from. You, you can argue with me, a dear expert, whether this is doesn't come from the vaccine, but you've seen it. You've seen it in your patients. You've seen it in your studies. So what is it? It's a spike protein, and you can stain for that. You can see it with your own eyes. So let's call it spike protein disease. Then we might actually be able to move forward as a group of medical professionals. And I think that's really, really important because everything seems that if you see any articles in the mainstream media about symptoms that people are experiencing at the moment or illnesses that people are experiencing at the moment, it seems to be put down to long COVID. And as you've clearly said, you know we've we've now got this link with this very, very dangerous spike protein disease. Um, I'm gonna ask Cheryl to, to pop back in because I know Cheryl's got a couple of things that she'd like to ask. Um, and I know one of them probably, uh, Cheryl, relates to uh, administration of other drugs along with uh, the so-called vaccine. Over to you, Cheryl. Chris, I know from looking at your uh, report, so I'm in particular looking at report 81, so that's looking at non-clinical overview, because this was called a vaccine, as you keep um, saying, uh, instead of a a genetically changing product, um, it actually didn't have to go through the same sort of um, testing. Um, so it says in report 81 that you um, there wasn't safety pharmacology, pharmacodynamic drug interactions weren't looked at, um, pharmacokinetic studies weren't performed, ge- uh, genotoxicity, carcinogenicity, um, mechanistic studies, target organ toxicity, and on and on it goes. All these things that would have given us a lot more information um, weren't done because it was called a vaccine. Um, so the thing that I know Debbie in particular is um, interested in is concomitant treatment. So it's all very well, you know, we're given mRNA shots with the flu jab and we're, we're taking other products like monoclonal antibodies. Is there anything that's come up in the um, data that you've seen that shows that there are interactions with other things or is that just something we'll find out in time by experience? Well, in fact, what's happening is that we are the safety study. We should have been, there should have been proper safety studies done where all of these um, things with the big words that you mentioned were studied uh, as part of the preclinical trials. And that normally takes, the phase, they're called phase one trials, and they basically, they take five to ten years to make sure 
that a product is safe to use. Um, but in this case, it was an extremely short, shortened process. And it, within a couple of months, a few uh, special rats and uh, a very small group of healthy volunteers and bang, they uh, move straight on to a clinical trial, which should never be done before you've got the safety data, which they didn't have. So for all those for all those reasons, nothing was done that should have been done. It's 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 like it's it's a, um, a sin of omission that that has has happened because if we'd done the safety studies and found the interactions, found um, the spread of the lipid nanoparticles, etc., it not I I can't say it wouldn't have happened because. I don't believe anything these days. I don't trust anybody because um, with the amount of money going into this um, and big pharma are getting so much out of it, I can't see I can't see people, my colleagues, any of them with any straight thinking. It's like um, for, from now, basically from 2020 onwards, you're not allowed to question anything. You know, part of science is asking questions. So whenever you come up with, you always come up with a null hypothesis. That's supposed to be the way you do a clinical trial, that this new product has no benefits compared with the new intervention, uh, the, the original intervention. And they, they weren't doing that. There was, there was nothing of that sort of um, trial done. So from that point of view, we don't know and therefore, we're gathering data as time goes on um, about the adverse events and anything that occurs with additional drugs. But the government have stopped. About a few months ago, they stopped collecting data in VAERS, which is the American Vaccine Adverse Event Reporting System. And they also had something called vSafe, which was another system as well. And those all fed in, even though they underreport very much like the yellow card system in the UK and similar systems in Australia and in Europe. So I don't think as an ongoing clinical trial, we're going to find out much because no one's really collecting the data, which is again, very worrying. And so all I'd say is for anyone who's gonna take anything, I mean, I wouldn't take another vaccine because we know that you're more likely to get COVID the more boosters you have. That was shown very clearly in a paper out of the Cleveland Clinic. So, you know, if you had one booster, you had this sort of risk for getting COVID. Second booster, oh, oh, this is this can't be right, surely. And a third booster, people who third boosted, even more likely to get COVID. This is crazy. How should that happen? They keep telling us, take another booster. That's your your immunity is waning. You need to take another booster. The answer is no, you're more likely to have um, a problem with. COVID if you take all these boosters. And then, of course, they've moved the flu jab, as you mentioned, Cheryl, to the mRNA product. So again, it's mRNA, and we know for sure that long-term is not good for us. It's not a safe product. It's not an effective product. In fact, even if it, even in theory, if it did work initially on the initial strain, it was very short-lived. And by the time Omicron came through, there is really no benefit to taking a vaccine period. And 
I've, be, I've become so concerned about looking back at the vaccines um, that I'm not even bothering to take a flu shot because at the end of the day, you know, if you actually look at the data, the, um, the, the flu jab that you're given every for, autumn, um, I keep saying fall there, it's, for, for you in the UK, it's autumn. Um, when you take that jab, it only is only about 10 to 20% effective at the best of times. So you've got an 80% chance of having a vaccine that's going to be of absolutely no use to you um, and only a 20% chance of benefiting, and that's with the old vaccines. Um, so I And I definitely would not take any more mRNA vaccines. My concern is that they're not producing shots in the future because they've already talked about vaccination by aerosolized. That means spray. They can spray in your atmosphere and we'll get vaccinated by just breathing. So there are very concerning trends ahead. Mr. Bill Gates has a lot to answer for, for these sort of very serious trends. And it's all right for him because, of course, he doesn't have to take the vaccine. Uh, he's quite happy to take his saline jab and pretend he's taking something. But he's perfectly safe from all of this sort of harms. I mean, I remember seeing not so long ago a cutting from some years back of him saying that him and his family didn't do vaccination. So that's classic. Um, but um, I mean, I basically build up my vitamin D levels and I think my immunity is quite strong and I don't get very many infections, touch wood. So at the end of the day, um, I protect myself. So there are other ways of protecting yourself that we need to talk to people about. But before we go on to that, um, there's been lots of things that have come out of all these reports, things like um, the, the cancers and the cardiovascular in, uh, issues, neurological issues, infertility issues. What's your major concern? What do you think will affect humanity the most? That's a very good question. Um, I think all of them, uh, but fertility issues are the, the most serious long-term effects now, why do, why do I say that? Um, when there's pronouncements from the World Economic Forum, from um, Mr. Baller, the CEO of Pfizer, from Bill Gates, when they come out and say that within two years, uh, population in the world will have gone down by 50%, um, that should tell you that's sort of like a, a sneak preview of what's upcoming, what they have planned for us. From whatever lockdown, whatever emergency they conjure up next, they're going to try and reduce the population. They've made that absolutely clear. But from a humanity point of view, the fact that this vaccine, the adverse events, serious adverse events, not just pain in the arm, we're talking about the serious adverse events that are often long-term and permanent, um, they mainly affected women with a ratio of between two to four times than men. The average age in both the Pfizer documents and in the European safety update reports, periodic safety update reports, um, were um, 31 years of age. So effectively, if you think about it, the serious adverse events are attacking women in particular of reproductive age. Now, yes, they may have had children already, but um, there are uh, pregnancies occurring later and later in life now. And so we are permanently 
altering our female population. That with our declining sperm count, with the effect of lipid nanoparticles clogging up the testes when you see that on autopsy studies, are very worrying because in the long term, how can we as a human population survive if we can't even reproduce properly? The number of miscarriages of pe from people who've been vaccinated is up by 80%. I mean, it's just crazy the changes that have occurred since the vaccine, and which is why you know, we have to recommend that we, we don't take any more of these and that we start looking after our bodies, take responsibility. As you say, Cheryl, take the vitamin D. Um, if you're concerned about COVID, take zinc as well, because um, that's the, uh, the way, the mechanism by which the, the human cell gets uh, infected by uh, COVID. Um, it attaches to the ACE2 receptors, and you can, and it stops zinc flowing into the cell. And so if, you've, if you're already plumped up with zinc, you're actually pre well prepared. And there are lots of other things we can talk about that help you to reduce the effect of this spike protein that you may have been uh, either injected with, or in fact, you may have had shed on you uh, by close proximity to someone who has been vaccinated or has had COVID, because it's, you know, it's affected us all. If you have had um, this injection, please don't don't panic. Don't have any more. And there are protocols and there are things that you can do to ameliorate. And we will talk a little bit more about those, I promise. So I just want to also make the point of, I think in the UK at the moment, we haven't got any mRNA flu jabs in the pipeline, although Cheryl reliably informs me that in other countries they are rolling out mRNA flu jabs. And I think we should also be um, remembering that uh, Stefan Bansal, who isn't qualified in pretty much anything, who runs Moderna, is very busy, not just employing Professor Jonathan Van Tam to work for him, but he's very busy investing in a huge, great manufacturing uh, plant here in, in the UK. So clearly mRNA is here to stay. But one of the things that you said was um, that, that obviously is going to raise a lot of alarm bells and people are going to want to know is the elephant in the room shedding. Um, what evidence are we seeing now that shedding is is a thing, it's real, it is taking place, and who is at risk most? Well, I think the, the answer to that is can be found in the Pfizer documents, in the clinical trial documents, because it was very clear uh, when they were doing the clinical trial, they were very concerned with the fact that because it's a respiratory virus, it tends to get infected in the front part of your nose. It's called the nares, the anterior nares. And when you get a lot of um, virus particles in there, it, it can shed um, the spike protein. And uh, it was very clear in the Pfizer documents, they tell, it, tell you if you're uh, feeding your child, um, not that you can't, you, know, you can't have a vaccine and feed your child. You'd have to um, buy it from the breastfeeding. You'd have to use a bottle and preferably get someone else to do it. The same as if you had COVID, you weren't supposed to um, breastfeed your child. So they were clearly aware of the potential of this. And that's why 
um, the theory of social distancing with droplet spread from up here um, was a concern and why they were trying, trying to introduce that sort of thing. And that's how they thought, well, masks are going to work because um, they do, don't they? Ha ha. Um, uh, but at the end of the day, people who are at risk of doing that are only if, if, you're, if you've been vaccinated these days. Um, so if you've been vaccinated, if you've taken it and you are breastfeeding your child, then you might consider expressing and getting someone else to feed the child. Not an ideal thing when you're, when you're a new, new mum and you're trying to bond with your child because that's such an important stage of child development. Um, and it, it's, tra it's tragic that that should happen. But that is really the only only situation that was known that was con that Pfizer and the FDA were concerned about right from the get-go. Um, at the moment, there is very little being done, and I've not seen any research papers on this. However, we do know that um, people who submit papers are getting them rejected before they're even considered because it's considered to be um, anti-policy, um, anti anti-narrative. Um, so um, I think it's going to be some time before actual any, any real data is, is shown. Um, but as I say, it's Pfizer in their own words. That's what we've been doing. We've been looking through the Pfizer documents. And we've been doing reports based on Pfizer's own data, which is why we've not been sued, because it's their own data. <laughs> it's their own words. And so that's why I say to you, the shedding all I can say to you is what was in the original Pfizer documents. And they talk about that, about um, close nursing your child um, when you've had a vaccine. Chris, have, we, have you got any evidence? I know that you've, you've recently had a Moderna. You've been analysing Moderna as well. And, and I think it's important that people remember that for Pfizer, it was 30 micrograms, three zero micrograms per dose, but with Moderna, it was 100 micrograms per dose. And I know that you're now receiving some of the Moderna documents. Um, what evidence are you seeing with any animal studies, possibly, or fetuses? Or have you seen anything, serious adverse reactions in neonates? Or is anything coming to your attention? At, at the moment, it's very early days. There are 15 million um, Moderna documents that are being released. But they've learned from the FDA release of the Pfizer documents that the last thing they want to do, especially in the first data dump, is to drop pharmacovigilance and the distrib clinical distribution studies <laughs> in rats and things like that. They don't want to do that because it showed so, so much information. We picked up so much information from those very first documents. And so what they've been producing to us are large database files which mean nothing because we don't have the index for the database. So we don't know what each, each field represents. And that is one of the way, ways later in the Pfizer document dumps that they've been trying to prevent researchers actually understanding the data that's in there. They've produced PDFs as JPEGs, that's an image file, so that we can't read them and insert them into spreadsheets, for example, for analysis. But we have data teams that uh, are working around the globe 
24-7 from Australia through uh, France and London, all the way through the US and up into Canada, who are working on the data, who hand off the data one to another, and getting this into one giant database. And re basically, we're having to recreate the original Pfizer database to get all the information. And it's going to be the same with Moderna. But as I say, they're obfuscating in a giant manner with 15 million pages. <laughs> it's going to, it's, it's crazy. And um, we know, especially with this dose business, because um, it was shown very early on from the data from the uh, Office of National Statistics here in the UK, that the serious adverse events, especially myocarditis, was actually more prominent in the um, in the Moderna compared with Pfizer, even in those very early days. And yet, even now, there, if you've ever seen the Australian um, Senate grilling the uh, the Pfizer doctors there in Australia, um, they say, "Oh, we don't accept there's any myocarditis." Um, hello. You know, we've had that evidence for that. It's accepted. It's actually in the data sheets now of Comirnaty. So, you know, Pfizer, everywhere else have accepted it, but they're not accepting it during testimony in Australia, which is very strange. It's almost like they'd never heard of this happening before. What, what do you mean? It's, myocarditis just occurs occasionally and it gets better soon. No, it doesn't. Uh, it's often a very long-standing thing. It has an, an effect on your... Um, your college life and professional life in future if you're a sports person, which is very common in the U US. Um, so, you know, the, the, there is a lot of um, machination going on in the background, which is very, very concerning and suggests to me that we're going, not going to find out much about Moderna really for another year or two. And that's really what they're trying to do is they draw it out long enough that the new cycle is so short these days. People will be concerned about something else. They won't be concerned about the fact that Moderna have been poisoning everyone with such giant doses of mRNA, which Pfizer knew immediately was too much. In the very early phase two tri clinical trial, they dropped it to 60, and then they quickly dropped it down to 30. And it's the same mRNA, um, lipid nanoparticles. It's all produced by the same people. After all, Moderna sued Pfizer for using their product, <laughs> and that's still ongoing. So, you know, it tells you immediately there's something wrong. Why would you take a, pr a product that's over three times more concentrated than one that already gives serious adverse events? It doesn't make any sense to me. I think it's very sobering too, you know, when you think that young people were um, often rooted down the Moderna route. Lots of youngsters had Moderna. And um, if you've got two people sitting together, one's having a Pfizer and one's having a Moderna, then the one that's having the Moderna is having three times more than the person sitting next to them. And that's the, that's the, the truth. Um, I'm keeping an eye on the clock. And I know that Cheryl has got one more question. And I've certainly got one more question before we come to the last word. Um, I mean, there's a million questions, to be honest, Chris, because um, I want to talk to you about language and safe and effective and all the rest. But what I do want to ask you just quickly, this is my last question to you, Chris, um, before, before I hand over to Cheryl for her last question, is the one thing that I have always been alarmed about and 
as we're both Royal Free Hospital trained, we know the training that we had and you know the kind of training that I had as a nurse and how we came to deliver drugs, to administer drugs, the amount of checks we would do. Um, and that if we were going to, if anything needed to be injected, most of the things that we were using was a one dose vial. And I've always been concerned that these come in multi-dose vials. And I've never understood how, how you could accurately draw up, especially have, as you're having to use dilutants as well, have, how you can draw up accurately five or six doses. But then I heard you say, and this did shock me because like you, we've been speaking to Headley Reese very much about the manufacturing and the distribution and his concerns about the specialist freezers that these injections need to be kept in and the freeze thaw and how they need to be stored. But what I did hear you say, which really concerned me, was that the liquid nano, uh, the lipid nanoparticles are affected by vibration as something as tiny as vibration. So if you were to be uh, shaking the vial, you would have to just very gently shake it. Because if you were to shake it rigorously, then who knows how that how that's going to affect the product. Can you explain a little more about that? Because I was quite concerned when I heard it, because I don't know if people are being trained or if they're being trained to draw these things up and be very careful. Yes, this, this actually goes back to the initial rollout um, of the vaccine when there were what we used to have in the car parks, we had all these marquees set up and people drive, drove through. How do you think the uh, vaccine was transported to these facilities for use? Um, were they uh, diluted by a, a local pharmacy and hospital? Um, and how were they transported? I know that in the USA, uh, a lot of the transport was done on motorbikes and on pothole roads. And that was a big concern because any vibration of the bottle, it actually disrupts the na lipid nanoparticles. They can break open. And as a result, it means that you can't guarantee that everyone's going to get the same dose of mRNA. It may be that some people get 100 micrograms and some people get 0.1. And maybe that's one of the reasons why not all of us got severe adverse events. Um, it may be that some of us had totally ineffective vaccine because of the fact it was it was the vibration occurred. They were very clear in their um, instruction manuals at the clinical trial sites that you had to gently invert the vial five times before you drew it up and gave it to the patient. Um, and the fact, as you mentioned, Debbie, the the multiple vaccines from one one multiple doses from one vial compared to the costs of setting up individual syringes uh, preloaded, which would have been a better solution. The European Medical, uh, European Medicines Associate Agency, I'll get it right eventually. This is this too much American has um, made, it, made it difficult for me sometimes getting back into uh, European thinking. Um, the European Medicines Agency, they uh, actually queried this and they were asking at one stage, um, to uh, have single-dose um, syringes made. Um, but Pfizer basically said it's going to cost so much money. Um, are you paying for it? No. Right, okay, well, <laughs> QED, you're not going to get any. 
<laughs> so that was sort of turned down. It's just sort of crazy. But I think that's, that's the answer is the fact that as soon as you start vibrating these vials, um, then you get disruption of the lipid nanoparticles. And that was always the problem, the quality control. And Headley goes into that quite a lot in his book. I don't have it with me, uh, but he's done um, a recently published a book on on the COVID uh, process of um, the vaccine. Cheryl's got it somewhere there. That's good. Um, but he goes he goes through that um, in great detail. Um, how important it is because of the fact that vibration uh, disrupts the the lipid nanoparticles. So you've got f- broken lipid nanoparticles. You may be receiving or you may be receiving intact ones, which become uh, solid at room at body temperature, but at ultra-low freezing, they're liquid. That's why they're easy to inject. And yet um, the, whole, the whole thing is wrong. And he- Headley Reese is very, very right to go on about this because he's really been big on the good distribution practice and good manufacturing uh, pro- uh, process that's supposed to be followed, period. I mean... For some reason, I mean, we could even get the MHRA to, um, we could pressurize them to to really look into this uh, and prosecute Pfizer based on on the poor uh, adherence to good manufacturing process. However, in one of the leaked contracts with uh, one of the countries, it was released uh, to a, a, an attorney's firm, showed that there was one line in it where good manufacturing process is not going to be a requirement for the contract. So that tells you immediately that um, they were up to funny business, that they were going to, um, you had to accept this product, whether we were made you an SE, a really bad product product or not, you know, you're going to take this and pay for it, come what may, because you need it. That's um, Headley's book. So if anybody will put a, a link perhaps into uh, the, the summary on that. Um, yeah, I mean, you've got to be congratulated and Amy Kelly for organising all these people to do such a good job. And they have been forensic in tracing missing people, for example, because they've had people they were aware of, but then their details haven't come through for, for a long time. Um, and that has led to a lot of very valuable information. And you're saying exactly the same thing over Moderna. It could be a long time before you get anything um, that is very useful because they are being cunning and they're, they're staggering the information. Um, and obviously that's why they wanted to put everything off for so many years before you got anything. Um, but um, you must be very proud of the group that you're working with. Yes, my teams are, are really great. Um, for example, one of our teams, the one who's just produced the preprint uh, that was published very recently, um, they had their team meeting that I was hoping to join, but it was it started at 10 o'clock at night for me. And the, the team meeting lasted for five and a half hours, and that's a weekly, <laughs> a weekly meeting, um, in developing um, the papers that we're writing and in going through some of the data, um, pulling together. So I have to do most of my stuff until I'm back in the States next week. I have to um, uh, do things by email, which is not quite as satisfactory. But I can tell you the teams work incredibly hard, incredibly long hours, and there is absolutely no pay for this. We don't get any, you know, most people 
are scared stiff of having, having their names known because we know we're on certain non-fly, no-fly lists and things as a result of um, what we're, we're finding and being vocal about it. Um, uh, people have lost their jobs. Many, many of our team have lost, lost their jobs. And this isn't just in, uh, in the UK, it's across the world, uh, not just the USA, everywhere. So um, they are volunteers. They have worked really, really hard, and I would always commend them for everything that they've done and the leadership of Amy Kelly and, of course, Naomi Wolf at the top of our, our feeding chain. Chris, can I just ask you, because as we've said, you know, there are going to be a lot of people watching this that are worried, uh, that are hearing information for the first time. Um, But it's not all doom and gloom, is it? There's lots of protocols and there's lots of things that you can do and also not take any more. But what would your advice be to anybody watching now? Maintain your health. Make sure you take vitamins, especially vitamin D. It's very important in the UK. But also, you know, if you've got any symptoms at all, consider looking at places like the Wellness Company. Just search them uh, on an internet search. Um, they're one of the companies that sponsor the Daily Clout and help us with our, um, our litigation against the government. Um, there's also the flccc.org. They're the, um, another group out in California who've developed a lot of protocols that can help you detoxify. And they've even got products you can buy called Spike Protein Detox. And the wellness company also have that. And they're relatively um, cheap uh, and hopefully we'll be able to get an affiliate over here in the UK so that it's readily available and you don't have to pay large amounts of shipping to get it over here. But bear in mind, these are all things that detoxify you. So the important thing is looking after yourself and knowing, knowing things. Learn about things. Um, look at the wellness company. See what they suggest. See what the FLCCC suggests to help you get along and get back to full health. Because if you're in full health, COVID's not going to get you, but the mRNA lipid nanoparticles could get you if you take any more. So most of all, put up your hands, say, no, not in my lifetime. Thank you very much. It's a very simple message to give. No, no thank you, no more. We want to thank you and all of your researchers, thousands of them, and please give our love to all of all of the team, uh, Dr. Wolf, Amy Kelly, who are all working so hard, literally 24-7, because as Australia goes to sleep, the researchers in the UK wake up and vice versa. So it's a continual chain. So I just want to thank you so much. And I'm going to give the first last word to Cheryl, and then we'll go straight to Dr. Chris Flowers for his last word. So with that said, Cheryl, it's over to you for your last word. This isn't put together so that we can frighten people. This is put together so we can make people aware and make you able to look up the information for yourself. Um, The COVID uh, vaccines are based on a modified mRNA um, and um, we need you to stop taking any of them. Um, I heard Kevin McKernan talk about the body having 30 trillion cells um, and now we've given multiple shots. The, the thing that he said is that that means that there's enough mRNA for every cell in the body within those shots. Why so much? Why do you need so much? 
Normally, we give a little antigenic material in a shot and then your immune system responds to that and it has a memory so that it can multiply the response when it's needed. Um, we've gone totally overboard with this. And as Debbie said, you need to say no. Um, and that's the reason for doing this interview, to make you aware and to say no more. Um, and we thank um, uh, Dr. Flowers and all his team for showing us that these vaccines are unsafe and ineffective. And we're so grateful for the continued work that is going on. And we hope to make it more widely known within the UK. Thank you so much for joining us um, today, as always. And now for the very final last word, Dr. Chris Flowers, thank you so much for your time. And um, Godspeed to the USA. And we're sure we'll see you very soon. Your last word, Dr. Chris Flowers. Well, friends, you've heard a lot. Um, there's been a lot of confusing language in there. But what we're trying to do is to educate you, because once you're edu educated, you can then share that education, that information with others. And it's by word of mouth, person to person, that I think we're going to win here. But it takes every one of us to make a stand. You know, it's, it's not just one person, one small group of people can kick back against big government, big pharma, big everything. You know, it's taking us in our local communities to stick together, to get informed and to do whatever we can to protect our own communities. That for every different type of issue that comes up in front of us, whether it's climate change, whether it's 15-minute cities, all of these silly nonsense things that are going on that they're trying to impose on us. But at the end of the day, try and keep yourself healthy, fresh air, exercise, vitamin D, uh, get yourself educated, know what's happening in the world. No longer sit back and just take everything in. You need to start being active. Talk to your friends, talk to your neighbours. Just drop it out in conversation, some, some of the things you may have learned today. Um, did you know? Did you know? Have you heard this? You know, And then people begin to wake up. One light at a time. It's like we're in a dark world. We're at, during the night time. All we need is for enough light to get out there. One little light can shine a long way, but lots of lights, they can light up the whole world. So I'd like to thank you for your perseverance in listening to this very long uh, discussion this, uh, today. Um, but I wish you all the best for the future. Thank you very much.